Hi, I'm Alexandra Yuhas. This is the third emergency episode of We Need Gentle Truths for Now. The podcast engages in radical digital media literacy by enjoying a bite of education and a bit of poetry, creating humane responses to fake news and social media in the era of COVID-19. This extra episode is being made during a time of uprising following the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and countless other African Americans at the hands of the police. During the second week of protest here in Brooklyn, I sent an email to about 15 poets who had participated in two fake news poetry workshops on race in the media in 2018. Who was ready to contribute poetry and analysis, words and ideas, to help us form responses and solutions, particularly about the connections between anti-Black racism and violence and representation. Stacey Evans writes essays, poetry, and comics. She offered her protest poem entitled, Because There Will Be No Chance to Say It Then. She wrote it in 2015, after Sandra Bland and Janiah McMillan died in police custody. We decided that she would read the poem and then talk about it on a Zoom call that we would record with Dr. Laura Wexler, Yale University Professor of American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. The two met previously at a workshop in 2018 where they worked together energetically, compassionately, creatively on another of Stacy's poems and the truths she had to tell there about Black women and the media. In Stacy's reading here, and then the unscripted conversation that follows with Laura, we hear resonances with two more hard truths written in 2017 for my online primer on fake news. Number 44, Black Lives Matter. And number 96, make manifest the contingency of the social. In that aphorism lies contradiction between what is manifest and what is contingent what is solid, and what is uncertain. It also resonates with other tender incongruities revealed in the conversation that follows between protest and poetry, between Black and white Americans, and between the hard and gentle truths we need for now. So I'm Stacey Evans. I'm a writer. I live in Brooklyn and I'm going to read a piece I wrote a few years ago that never seems to go out of date. It's called Because There Will Be No Chance to Say It Then. If I die in police custody, I was murdered. I didn't fight, didn't grab for a weapon, didn't mysteriously pass in my sleep, didn't kill myself. I may have said, hey, when the violence started, surprised that someone was brutalizing me. I may have said, hey, again, more quietly, when I felt my life leeching out of me, surprised that it was really coming to that. I say, hey, when something's going on, going wrong. I don't shout it, just say it with honest surprise. It's not the best last word to be remembered for, but it will be mine, I'm sure. If I die in police custody, know that whatever story the police tell you is a lie. Know that because you know me. Say, that's not what Stacy would do. Then go out in the street and say my name. 
If I die in police custody, it is because an officer, probably white, surely male, saw my big blackness and decided my life didn't matter. He maybe didn't see me as human, but as animal, as chaff, as supernatural demon, as worthy only of his violence. Saw my beautiful kinky hair as scruff, my soft full body as too much, my big long-fingered hands as wrong, and he crushed them, crushed me. Then turned and told you I did it to myself, that I was the one full of hate, who didn't see my life as worth living. He is lying. You must know that he is lying. And you do know. You knew it after Sandra Bland. You knew it after Ginny McMillan. You know. If I die in police custody, remember how I sound when I say hey. The look of puzzlement that creases my face when I say it. That time I was buying fabric on 39th Street and a shelf of bolted wool was about to collapse on me. 6 a.m. in Ljubljana as I stood outside a bland Soviet apartment block watching a man walk away with my suitcase. The three train platform at Kingston when I asked the conductor a question and he closed the doors and drove off, leaving me behind. The hay is real, always. When I said it to the police officer, did he ignore my tone, the confusion on my face and hear challenge, resistance? I don't care. Don't forgive him. I did not deserve death. If I die in police custody, know that what I always said is still true. I wasn't Trayvon, not Tamir, but Eleanor, as in bumpers. Know that it didn't matter who I was, that my height, my size, the soft, warm brown of my skin were a fatal equation, adding up to one more body, one more hashtag. Say my name. If I die in police custody, don't let Fox News get away with describing me as angry and combative. Force them to see that I was full of love. That even as I cried and called out, unable to process the fact of my dying, I was still holding hope, still imagining salvation, a deus ex machina jailhouse rescue. If I die in police custody, remember me. Wow. So I'm Laura Wexler, and thank you for that reading, Stacey, and also for the poem. You saw Sandra Bland, you know. And then to untie all this humanness around what you know, not just the violence of the police, but the hay, the big soft body, the beautiful kinky hair, the travel to Russia to lose the suitcase in the first place, the, all the humanness that's there, the hay. And then what is it to know the violence of the police and what is it to know the humanness that's there? My reaction to the poem is, it doesn't teach me anything about the police, but it teaches me to know where to find the meaning of what the police do, which is in the destruction of all the rest of the humanness. I don't know. That's my feelings right now about it. Yeah, and so first I just want to say, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the idea that I might die at the hands of the police. I think about it but only when it's put in front of me, like when someone else has died at the hands of the police, or if I come face to face with a police officer who seems to look at me in a way that doesn't feel safe, I think about it then. But I don't, I don't walk around thinking about it, but writing this poem, I realized that I, in some ways I actually do think about it a lot more than I realized. And then I think about what does that do to my ability to express my humanness if I'm also thinking about that. Because oh. of course I am trying to show in that poem that I am a, a full human being and not just a random unknown name that might get 
put in a news article, might, might not get put in a news article. It's realizing the impact of being aware of this possibility and what that does to my ability to be human. I would like to hear from you more about how writing poetry about these hard things, and that it brings your personhood back, that it shows you what you just said, which is interesting, how it makes it harder to think about. It's, it's so hard to think about the fact that you have to think about this. What does poetry do? Yeah, that's really interesting because I don't actually think of myself as a poet at all. But one thing that is true, or that has seemed to be true, is that a lot of the poetry that I write is poetry that deals with race, which deals with my anger, which deals with all the things that are wrapped up in that poem I just read. And I wonder if it's because I'm able to find a way further into those ideas if I write them in poems. You said before we started recording our talk that you haven't been out in the streets right now, partly because of the quarantine, but also partly because you said you stopped going to those kinds of demonstrations a while ago. Is that because you can't say hey on the street? (laughs) So I had been going to a lot of protests in 2014 when Michael Brown was killed. I went to a lot of protests. And I went to protests when Daniel Pantaleo was not you know, charged with killing Eric Garner. I went to protests then. I went to that big march that happened in December of that year, the Day of Rage March. And yes, I felt it was important to be there, to have my body count as one more person who was in the street protesting. But after every protest that I went to, I mean, it happened during the protest too, but certainly when I was leaving every protest that I went to, I had the same feeling of mostly just being demoralized, Uh not feeling like anything that I could wrap my arms around was happening that I would think of as as helpful or positive. And then there were (laughs) were some, some other things that happened, particularly during that Day of Rage protest. There were tons of people, which was wonderful. There were, I saw so many people that I knew there, which was wonderful. But there were two things that happened in particular that were very distressing to me. One was that there would be, you know, the protest was huge. So, you know, different chants are happening at different places along the march. But I noticed in the section of the march that I was in, every time this one black guy who was near where I was marching had a great, deep, booming voice, and he would start a chant. And so everyone around him would, of course, chant with him because he was a good chant leader. But every time he would start a chant, there was this group of white men who would start another chant. Now, all the chants were about the same thing, but this group of white men would make their chant so loud that they would drown out the chant that the Black guy had started. And they spent so much time trying to get everyone to follow them instead of choosing to follow the voice of the Black guy who was standing right next to them. And when people called them on it, they were like, oh, we didn't hear him say anything. Like they, they just, you know, it was, it was so enraging and so disgusting. Yeah, so that was really upsetting. 
And then, of course, you know, one of the chants that, and people still use it, is like they'll, you know, march with their hands up and say, hands up, don't shoot. Uh-huh. And something about walking through the streets of any city, but particularly my city, the city I've lived in for more than half my life, in a position of surrender, just really hurt. And after that march, I was like, no, I can't do this anymore. This is not the way I can bring myself into protest. Like, I have found other things that I do. I mean, I use my voice, I write, I like, I make donations to things when I can, but I can't do that. I can't put myself in the street in that way and come home feeling, feeling pain. Yeah, I just decided this is not for me. I can't do it. I appreciate the people who are in the street. I am excited that there are so many people in the street. I can't be one of them. A lot of people talk about the exhilaration of being together in those groups and don't talk about what you just said, which is what does it mean to be put in that position on the streets of your city? Can I wrap up, unless you two have something you want to say, by returning to where we started, which is to hear both of you think about hard truths or gentle truths in relationship to this conversation that has been about rage, anger, the kind of quiet, contemplative process of poetry as a way to have a voice but remove yourself from, like, white patriarchal violence on the street in some ways, and just reflect on you know, do we need gentle truths for now? Stacy? do you need gentle truths? What kind of truths do you need? What kind of truths does your poetry produce? So in the last two weeks, I have gotten so many texts and emails and messages on my phone from friends asking me how I am. And I get it. And I, I appreciate that they're thinking about me. But also, I'm like, but how do you think I am? Of course, I'm terrible. Like, how, how else am I going to be? I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm, but I'm also 100% fine. Like, I'm safe and comfortable in my house. So I don't think that I personally need any gentle truths right now. Like, I have gentle truths already. Like, I can, I can tell myself those gentle truths. I'm much more interested in... I guess it's not that they are not gentle, but I'm much more interested in like painting the street to say Black Lives Matter leading up to the White House. I'm much more interested in the noise of protests, in all of the ways that all of the people who are mobilizing all over this country are making those gentle truths loud. They are putting those things aside and saying, no, we can't, we aren't, you can't accept this anymore. And okay, yes, I'm just going to say it. It's problematic that anybody could accept it ever. But okay, I'm glad that people aren't accepting it now. How about you, Laura? Do you need gentle truths now or hard truths? I think in a sense, the gentlest truths are the hardest ones. Um, I'm I'm thinking about these men, the, the black man with the beautiful voice right next to you, and then the clutch of these white men trying to drown out his voice and succeeding, I guess, often and claiming they didn't know. And well, first of all, I mean, the voice, the breath of voice, it's so primal. So, I mean, and that's, and that's one of the great cries of this period. It's like, it's right there what you need to listen to. It's right there. It's right beside you. It's always been there. People have always been saying it. Shut up and listen is really... I think the gentlest and the hardest 
truth of all. Thank you. Steve. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Alex. My pleasure. I just get fed by being in uh, spaces with people who are so wise and open and willing to be vulnerable and thoughtful. So I appreciate that from both of you. Yeah, this was a really good opportunity to say out loud some things that I have been thinking and not saying out loud. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to this emergency episode of We Need Gentle Truths for Now, Black Lives Matter, Make Manifest the Contingency of the Social. We have heard the poetry of Stacey Evans, the subtle contradictions that lace our movements, words, and interactions in these moments of American crisis, and the power of informed, careful conversation. As Laura Wexler says, the gentlest truths are the hardest ones. To learn more about Stacy's poetry and other writing, as well as the larger Fake News Poetry Project, please see the embedded links or listen to our podcast, Zero. This episode was produced, written, and read by Alexandra Juhas. It was directed and edited by Matthew Hiddle and copy edited by Gavin McCormick. Music by Noah Chevin. Social media assistance by Julia Gill and Cole Richards. Thank you for listening. <laughs>